Right, well, I am the curator that's responsible for this, this um, object. Um, so I thought I'd give you, uh, as a response, really a, a bit about how it's come back into the muse museum and the history of the object after it was made, uh, and our sort of decisions about how we should display it and how we should show it, which have led really to Charlotte coming in and then doing more research on it, which is obviously great for us as, as a museum. And it's a huge object. It's as tall as the top of the, um, top of the, the screen here. It's three metres tall, so it's a really vast thing. Um, and it was made between 1858 and 1862. Um, this is um, for, actually, Burgess's own house, um, for his um, 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 uh, uh, studio in Buckingham Street. Um, uh, and this is it photographed there. It's actually not in the site where it was actually um, sited, um, but this is in a sort of bedroom somewhere where I think it could be photographed. Um, this is it photographed before it was changed. You'll see if you look at, um, look at it there and then look at it now, you'll see actually it was much more elaborate um, when it was first made. It had much more um, decorative crocketing and stenciling on all of the... Um, if you look at the, the top section there, you can see black um, stenciling. That's all gone. That all went actually in the 1870s when it was sort of pared down slightly. Um, I think probably on the advice of Godwin uh, to make it a bit more fashionable um, to aesthetic taste. So it's become a little bit slightly more Japanese-y. If you look at the, the decorations here, down here, this is now sort of much more aesthetic than it would have been when it was first made, when it was Gothic, um, Gothic crocketing. Um, this is actually Burgess's own little plan, which tells us, this is how we know who all the artists are. Um, this is actually in the RIBA. Um, and um, Charlotte showed earlier the, the Solomon um, stencil. Uh, uh, there seem to be tracings made by, by Burgess of all the artists' um, um, uh, decorative panels, which are now in the RIBA. And this is the key to all that. So it tells you, you know, who did each panel and what the subject is. So there are 14 different artists there. So it's, it's a wonderful document. And I should say that Charlotte has very recently found the bill. Well, not the bill. The, we, we now know how much each artist was paid to do each panel. This is, this is new information. So Charlotte's had time to go off um, through the papers, Burgess's papers, and has found um, how much um, um, it actually cost. Can I, can I tell them? Yes, it was £5 pounds per artist per panel. So it's very exciting. <laughs> Um, most of the artists, as she said, were, were very young, sort of young um, artists in their early 20s most of the time. Now, um, when um, Burgess moved to his own house, um, tower, tower House here in Melby Road, um, um, Holland Park, which he moved in in 1878, he took the cabinet with him and it was displayed there right through until um, 1933 um, in this room, which is the library. And this, one which, and this is an 1881 view of the library. And actually, you can't see the great bookcase, but actually it was opposite these fitted bookcases uh, on the opposite side from the, from the chimney piece. And stay there. The fitted, the fitted bookcases are still there. They, they actually um, are still part of the interior furnishings of the house. The house is now owned by Jimmy Page of, I always forget, is it Led Zeppelin? Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. <laughs> uh, and it's wonderfully well preserved. Um, <laughs> John Betjeman lived there for a little bit in the 1960s, and then Peter O'Toole for a little bit, and then it was bought um, by Jimmy Page in the early 1970s. He's a great collector of 19th century decorative art, so he's looked after it very well, but it means access is very, very limited to the house, unfortunately. I still haven't managed to get in. Uh, but it's, uh, um, th 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 that entire scheme survives. But I say all the furnishings were sold off in the 1930s, sadly. Now, the reason we have it in the Ashmolean is down to Kenneth Clark, who had recently been appointed in 1931 as Keeper of Art. He was only young, still in his late 20s. And actually, in 1928, he published uh, The History of the Gothic Revival, uh, which was a kind of key, key publication um, at that time when the Gothic Revival was hugely unfashionable and, and, and widely derided. Uh, and he was publishing this. And actually, in 1933, he purchased the Great Bookcase directly from the auction 
of, um, of uh, Melby Road when the contents were sold off. And he paid £50 for it. And there's a wonderful report to the visitors, to the trustees of the Ashmolean Museum. And he writes, though not acceptable to present taste, it will always remain an important document in the history of the Pre-Raphaelite movement and a minor realisation of the ideals behind such projects of the decoration of the library of the Oxford Union and the building of the University Museum. So this is why he bought it. But actually, it seems never to have been shown. This is what I mean. It was actually really was unacceptable to present taste. Uh, and as far as I can tell, it was never shown in the 1930s or the 1940s at all. Um, the reason he partly acquired it was probably because of this object, which is already in the collection by that date, on long-term loan from May Morris. This is the uh, uh, Priorist's Tale uh, wardrobe, made for the marriage of Morris and Jane Burton in 1859. Um, the design is by um, Webb, and the painting is by Burne Jones. It's a rather distasteful subject. You know, it's, it's, it's Hugh of Lincoln there. Um, it's, it's not a very nice story, and a rather odd choice for a wedding gift. And in the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see from Edward Burne Jones to William Morris. And this sat in the, bed, the main bedroom at the Red House um, originally. Now, the reason it was lent to us in 1901 by May Morris um, to the Ashmolean Museum, uh, and was still there, and was eventually bequeathed to us in 1939. So when I think Kenneth Clark was acquiring the Great Bookcase, he had this in mind. And actually, what is rather nice is this juxtaposition between. As Charlotte was saying, um, this, the entire surface has been treated as an easel here. This is painted furniture, but very, very different painted furniture to the great bookcase, which is actually painted in a much more medieval um, sense, um, in panels with flat backgrounds, without this um, spatial um, um, representation in the background, which you see particularly in the top, top left there. Now, the reason that was lent to us is partly because of this man, Thomas Coombe, who was a superintendent of the Oxford University Press, who had... Um, been an early patron of the Pyrophilites. Um, he was in Oxford, and he often bought many of their paintings in the early 1850s when nobody else was buying them. And he, um, his house is still there. It's still part of the quadrangle in um, Oxford University Press. And he put together a rather remarkable collection. And in, um, when he died, his collection passed to his wife, and when she died in 1894, it was passed to the Ashmolean Museum. So one foul swoop, we got an extraordinary collection of Pyrophilite paintings. In, in the early 1890s. Um, and this shows you, this is the old gallery, which shows you um, um, the Pyrophilite Gallery. This is Gallery 67, with this famous triptych here of, uh, as they were hung in, um, in his room. In, in, uh, I should say that was by Woolner, that wonderful um, bust, by the way, um, uh, which is also in the collection. In the centre, we've got Holman Hunt, the early Christian family, um, um, uh, sheltering an early priest from the Druids. We've got convent... Convent Thoughts on the right hand side by Collins and on the left the return of the dove by Millet and this is how they were hung in, um, in, in, um, uh, in the house of Thomas Coombe. But the great bookcase, as I say, doesn't seem to have been shown with these. I, I think it was just too, too beyond the pale for 1930s taste. And in fact, it was banished um, in 19... Well, in 1952, it went to a groundbreaking exhibition on Victorian and Edwardian decorative art at the V&A and that seems to have been the, the exhibition which completely changed opinion or started to change opinion about 19th century decorative art. Um, and that, for instance, we know influenced the Hanley Reeds, who were the great sort of collectors um, in the late 50s and 1960s of Victorian decorative arts. Um, and they, they visited that exhibition in 52 at the V&A, and that changed their opinion. The bookcase was lent there, uh, and then stayed at the V&A for a number of years, and then was sent, and was banished down to this place. This is Knight's Hayes Manor, down in Devon, which is um, Burgess's unfinished country house. Um, he fell out with the, um, with the client halfway through, and the interior was never finished. Uh, so it has, the, has a Burgess exterior, but the interior is, is unfinished by Burgess. And many pieces have been lent by other institutions, such as the V&A, 
to, um, to this house, um, but Burgess pieces have been lent um, for many, many years. And that seems to have been, uh, our bookcase was lent there in the early 1960s and seems to have stayed there right through until 2016 when we asked for it back. Um, uh, it was lent to the groundbreaking exhibition on Burgess in 1981 in Cardiff, The Strange Genius of William Burgess. But apart from that, and this is, means it's been sort of forgotten about. It's been out of, um, out of circulation, which is why you've probably not heard very much about it, why very little work or research has been done on this object, which is why it's only starting now. Um, it's, it, this is it. I mean, it looked rather nice there. The National Trust were very upset to lose it when we asked for it back, but um, we felt it was time to bring it back and actually to complete um, the vision of Kenneth Clark of having this great sort of um, uh, collection of Pyrrhophilite paintings and furniture. Now, the reason I've got these two people on there, these are, uh, this is, uh, the other side of my job is being nice to very wealthy collectors, and these are two American collectors called the Wigmalls, uh, who are, he's a trustee of the, um, of the Met Museum in New York, he's a Goldman Sachs partner, so extremely wealthy, but she collects 19th century decorative arts, and she happened, um, they live in this extraordinary apartment in the Dakota building in New York, which is completely de decorated in 1880s aesthetic style, and they have a wonderful collection of English art pottery from the kind of 1880s and 1890s, uh, now, my colleague happened to be out visiting their collection and picked this up in their kitchen, which is a William de Morgan um, bowl, uh, uh, rather nice, and um, said, oh, it's wonderful, we have this, you know, it's, it would be so nice to have these sort of objects. We have a great collection of 19th century paintings, but we don't actually have any decorative arts. So they then said, well, why don't we give you our collection and we'll give you enough money to redo the gallery and to change everything and to show for the first time decorative arts with paintings. Excuse me. And this is how... The whole project came about. Um, hang on. So these are the old 19th century galleries. Some of you will remember them. This is Gallery 66. Fairly dreary gallery. It's been redone in 2009 with this kind of red wall. But actually, it was a, most of the peripherals were in the smaller room next door. We'd moved those in there to try and recreate the intimate domestic feel of Thomas Coombe's house. Um, um, uh, but in this room, it was a kind of ragbag collection of um, French and, um, I mean, very important things, don't get me wrong. I mean, wonderful turners, wonderful, I mean, wonderful things, but it was, it, there was no coherence to this collection, and there was some sculpture in there. But as you see, there was no 19th century decorative art um, in there at all. So we started thinking about how we could um, redo this gallery, and of course, we knew we wanted to bring the Great Bookcase back. This was something that was a key. We, it had been away for over 80 years, so it had never been shown for 80 years in the museum. We felt this, was, this should be the centrepiece of the new galleries. And we tried making it work with the existing wall colours and with the existing hang of the paintings, but of course um, we, needed, we, we rapidly realised we had to bring the Pyrrhaphalite paintings out of a smaller gallery into this big gallery so they could be hung with the, um, the great bookcase and the wardrobe too, which needs to be displayed with this piece. So we redid the galleries last year with, say, lots of help from the Wigmore money, and um, um, so that's the, that's the smaller room with the Pyrrhaphalites. And this is it now. So if you haven't been, do come and look at our new 19th century galleries. And, it was, um, and you can see how we changed the colour. Very important, I think, you know, because the colour of the Great Bookcase really glows against it. This looks like a, a blue here. It's much more the green blue in reality. Um, it's like kind of Rossetti blue, as they call it, it's up in um, Manchester City Art Gallery. Um, uh, and it really sings against it. I mean, you can see we've hung next to the um, Great Bookcase all of the Pyrrhophalites, including the famous triptych of them, uh, the, the Millet, the... Um, the Holman Hunt and the, the Collins uh, as it was hung um, in, um, in the house, in Coombe's house. And then above it, you see these rather wonderful coloured um, shields. They were actually painted for Thomas Coombe by various artists, including Millet, because he signed one of them, and they hung over the paintings in his drawing room um, in his house in Oxford. 
Um, but what you will also see is that we've got this wonderful collection now of cases for the first time with 19th century decorative arts in them from the Wigmore collection so these are, and from other collections as well. So this is how we've, we've redisplayed the galleries. We also introduced air conditioning, very important in this gallery. There was no air conditioning before, so it used to get incredibly hot. And actually, for something like the Great Bookcase, which is in remarkable condition, given the fact it's a painted pine object, really, it's in incredible condition. And we couldn't put that into an un uncontrolled space. Um, and you can sort of see it here. And you can see how it's juxtaposed with the, the wardrobe on the other wall, on the far end, which is a, um, a, a very nice sort of juxtaposition between this kind of 1860s, um, uh, 1860s painted furniture. Um, I should say that the Great Bookcase was also shown in the medieval court. I don't know if you mentioned that yet. At, that, at the 1862 exhibition, there's a wonderful quote. Um, uh, um, it was not liked by everyone, and there's a wonderful in the in the builder. Uh, it, there's a there's a um, a wonderful description. Uh, Mr. Burgess's bookcase, illustrative of pagan and Christian art, is full of the childish follies we are so uh, which are spread all over this painted furniture. The outline of the case is simply ugly. The cornice is heavy and disproportional. Panels of what look like real Florentine inlaid marble are set in the commonest deal frames, unredeemed by even good workmanship. The paintings are awkward and are of an equal merit. And it goes on and on and on. And they clearly didn't understand this very, very complicated um, decorative scheme, which is actually completely coordinated and, and everything means something. They, just, they simply hadn't got it, they hadn't understood it. And the more we look at it, the more we realise how more layer after layer with this object, it really repays more and more um, close attention. Um, there it is again, um, looking resplendent. Uh, these chairs are also shown in that room. You might think, why are we showing Chinese mid-19th century chairs? But these actually also have a Pirafalite connection. These belonged originally to Millet. Uh, he then left them or gave them to Rossetti, and then Rossetti then gave them to Holman Hunt, and then Holman Hunt's widow eventually left them to us uh, in the 1920s. And um, they were bequeathed to us and kept in store for many, many years. So we've got those out as well. So we've got a very strong, uh, very strong group of um, peripheralite associated furniture. We're just about to acquire some new chairs designed by Rossetti as well, um, um, Morris um, Sussex chairs, which will go on display um, on either side of the wardrobe. Um, when we opened the, uh, the new galleries, we decided to have a, uh, a one-day symposium at the same time to really promote the new galleries. Uh, and we used Rodopis, um, this wonderful panel here by Pointer, from the Great Bookcase to, to, to advertise this. Uh, and we, we chose Not Acceptable to Present Taste as the kind of strap line for, for that, which is obviously Kenneth Clark's um, description. And this was really, we made it about pioneering collecting of this sort of material in the 20th century, because we forget now, when, when it is so popular, of course, it, it's only re relatively recently that people have become that interested in this furniture. It had been despised for many, many years. And finally, you've seen this already, but it now means with the object being back into the, the collection, it means that we can do proper research and analysis. So this is our, um, our paintings conservator has examined the panels using um, infrared. So this is where you can see the underdrawing here, which lists um, each, each um, stone. So you can see topaz and um, read them off the price of praise there. Um, Chalcedony, I think. Um, uh, listed there under, under the painting. You obviously can't see them to the naked eye. And he's also done lots more work on uh, analysing the pigments that we use, because we thought that Burgess would have used the original pigments that are uh, listed in Theophilus, for example, you know, vermilion. But actually, when we've now tested them, the red, the very, the very distinctive red of the cabinet um, there, uh, which is imitating medieval reds, of course, um, actually turns out to be made of vermilion, which of course is one of the original colours, but also chromate reds, highly toxic but modern pigments, which are um, so it's a highly toxic mixture of, of mercury and, and chromate colours. 
And then the whites underneath some of the painting is tin white, so it's a modern, a modern pigment, not the, not the lead white you might expect. And then the blues, these very distinct blues here, which we think he's sort of imitating or trying to imitate um, Della Robbia blues, um, are, are, are taken from um, cobalt blues, again, which is a very sort of, um, it's not a very uh, uh, stable pigment, so actually the surface is rather sort of pink pockmarked and, um, and very uneven, but he seems to have wanted to get that particular colour. So he's using these modern colours, which shows you that Burgess is, is, is very open to using these modern pigments and modern, modern colours. And, and more and more research will continue on this cabinet. Um, but, um, so do come and see it, please. Mm-hmm.